On November 13th, 20-year-old Ethan, 21-year-old Madison, 20-year-old Xana, and 21-year-old Kaylee were all brutally stabbed to death at a house near the University of Idaho campus, leaving the community and classmates in shock. Something like this doesn't happen in Idaho. It's known to be a quiet and very safe area. Well, as of today's date, this is the newest update and an arrest has been made ever since then. So let's talk more about that. This case story contains graphic and shocking content. Listener's discretion is advised. Also, if you're a fan of dark mystery stories along with true crime cases, then you're listening to the right podcast. I hope everyone enjoyed the holidays. I had to take a mini break. Well, actually, it ended up being an extended break just to enjoy it fully with loved ones. And I've been working on a couple of projects that I cannot wait to show all of you. But guess what? Now I'm back. I'll be uploading once a week, so if that sounds like your cup of tea, then all you have to do is hit that five-star review button and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. On December 30th, the Moscow Homicide Investigation Team released an update to the public that a 28-year-old criminology student by the name of Brian Koberger was arrested in connection to the Idaho 4 case. He is wanted on four counts of first-degree murder and one count of felony burglary for entering a residence with the intent to commit murder. Koberger lives in Pullman, Washington, and is a graduate student at Washington State University. Now, before I continue, if you haven't heard my first episode on this case, it's titled Idaho Student Murders Who Killed Them. I will also link it below in the description, and I advise you to listen to that one first, then come back over here, just so you're not confused. These murders have shaken our community, and I know that no arrests will restore the families or bring these young students back. However, we believe in the criminal process and continue to extend our most sincere condolences to the families, said Moscow Police Chief James Fry. Since November, investigators have been laser-focused on pursuing every lead in our pursuit of justice. This complex case took extensive work to develop a clear picture of what occurred, and I'm thankful to the dedication shown by members of the Moscow Police Department, Idaho State Police detectives, and crime lab technicians and scientists, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation for the resources and personnel to conduct this massive investigation. It was persistent determination and extensive hours spent unraveling this case that led to an arrest. Moscow Police Chief James Fry. Who is Brian Koberger and why do they believe he is the suspect? Brian grew up in Pennsylvania and went to high school near the Poconos Mountains. Oh my gosh, I think I said that horribly wrong. I apologize. His father worked in maintenance and his mother worked in local schools. He has two sisters, both older than him. One is a school counselor and the other is a therapist. So there is a small detail about his sister Amanda that makes this case extra eerie. She was actually in a slasher film in 2011. It was called Two Days Back. It was a film about a group of friends who walk into the woods and soon find themselves in harm's way. Now, this group of friends in the movie are stabbed to death with knives and other weapons. In the movie, the killer befriends this group of friends, then kills them. The director, Kevin Boone, was in complete shock when he found out that there was a connection to Amanda and Brian. The director liked Amanda a lot and said she was very kind and great to work with. He didn't know Brian was her brother because he never attended set with her. 
So I don't know, weird eerie connection, just a random coincidence, or was he inspired by this movie to commit his own horrific crimes? What do you guys think? A few former friends spoke out with media outlets stating that Brian was considered overweight by fellow classmates and would get bullied a lot. He was always good to me. Over the years, that changed. Going into his senior year, he lost a lot of weight, and I heard that he might have become a bully, said Casey Arntz. Casey also mentioned that he had a drug problem with heroin. Now, you guys, this is all alleged, by the way, everything that I'm stating about these friend statements that were made to media. I'm not fully aware if any of this was actually proven. Um, So again, this is just what was taken from somebody who went to school with him. His drug use led Koberger to lose friendships during his senior year of high school. He eventually got clean from drugs, stayed in town, and became a security guard for the high school he went to. He then attended Northampton Community College, and after that, went to DeSales University, where he obtained his bachelor's degree in 2020, followed by a master's degree from the school's criminal justice program. During his time at DeSales University in Center Valley, Pennsylvania, he studied under Dr. Catherine Ramsland, who is a pretty known forensic psychologist that spent years studying serial killers and mass murderers. She's known for having a close relationship with Dennis Rader, an American serial killer known as the BTK. Rader is known for killing 10 people in Kansas. He sent really creepy letters to police and media outlets describing the details of his crimes. So his daughter actually spoke with Brian Ensign from News Nation about Brian Koberger, and this is what she had to say. Dr. Ramsland has yet to make a statement about Brian as of today's date, but she may be in the trial. After getting his master's degree at DeSales, he moved to Pullman, Washington and became a PhD candidate and teaching assistant at Washington State University, just across the border from Idaho. He lived in an on-campus apartment for graduate students. One of his classmates said that he was very arrogant and off-putting. While the investigation was going on, Brian was talking to a neighbor about the case and didn't think investigators had any leads. So he was obviously watching this investigation very close after he committed the gruesome slayings. He was a teacher's assistant and was giving out A's to like everyone in class. Like he became super lenient all of a sudden during grading, almost like he wasn't paying attention to anything anymore. Probably because his mind was so focused on whether he was going to get caught or not. Koberger applied for an internship with the Pullman Police Department in 2022, saying in his essay he was interested in assisting rural law enforcement agencies with how to better collect and analyze technological data in public safety operations. Okay, so listen to this. So many weirdos have been creating like fake social media accounts using his full name and picture. Why would you do that first of all? Okay, second of all, let's not get off topic. They're basically pretending to be him. Not sure why anyone would do this, but it's led to so much speculation of what accounts belong to him and which ones are fake. One that was confirmed, though, was his Reddit account. He posted a survey on there asking for volunteers for a research study where he was studying the criminal mind. Now, pretty common for a criminology student, right? Nothing too crazy. But listen to this. 
He wanted to know about the emotional and psychological considerations of people who had been convicted of crimes, which is now deleted by the way, but so many screenshots of the posts can be found with like literally a quick Google search. He asked things like, did you prepare for the crime before leaving your home? Before leaving, is there anything else you did? And after committing the crime, what were you thinking and feeling? This survey left so many people wondering if he was really trying to figure this info out for himself or not. There was also an old forum on a website called Tapa Talk, and this was back in 2011. And Koberger made 118 posts talking about how he felt his struggles with life and mental illness. He also mentioned in his post that he was struggling with a rare neurological condition called visual snow, which is like seeing static in your vision, tinnitus, and altered brain. He wrote that he felt completely disconnected from reality, which he thinks he brought upon himself or because he had two different medications mixed that could have possibly altered the way he thinks. He wrote that he had no empathy or remorse for others and just felt really disconnected from everybody. As for Brian's parents and family, we have no reason to suspect that they had any involvement in what took place that night. Okay, so remember that white Hyundai Elantra they were looking for? Well, detectives seized it during the arrest. It did end up being his car, but there's a lot more that links him to this case. His mugshot photo shows him wearing a turtle suit vest. This could either mean that he was threatening to hurt himself or he was fighting back. Or sometimes it's usually used to protect an inmate from something or someone. We now know that authorities knew who they were looking for when they mentioned that white Elantra. Police are right now asking for the public's help to identify the driver or the occupants of that white 2011 to 2013 Hyundai Elantra. He explained how they received so many tips from the public and was sorting through them all. They had more information, like a lot more, and still do, but admitted to keeping it safe. Investigators were thrown under the bus with people questioning if they were even a good fit for the case, but this whole time they knew exactly who they were looking for. They just needed more evidence in order to arrest him. This is a case that I was honestly so scared about, especially during that time, like when he wasn't caught yet, I was so afraid of the dark. I would try to stay off of my phone before bed so I wouldn't watch anything on it. It was like filling up my For You page and then I would open up a random Google search and there's a new article. I would open up YouTube and there's a new video about it. It was everywhere and it was honestly disturbing my sleep. And I've heard that from so many others as well. You guys, I am so glad he was caught. And although, according to the law, innocent until proven guilty, I believe that investigators do have enough evidence that will hopefully hold up well in court during the trial, but we'll just have to see when that time comes. So many people are following this case, and I think a lot of people were relieved after he was caught, especially the families. Okay, so let's talk about the arrest. On December 30th, from 4.02 a.m. to 6.22 a.m., a police plane circled the Koberger family home according to the flight records. They were watching their gated community home that Brian was visiting during the holidays. DNA evidence collected from the trash outside the home was a match to the suspect profile and his father. FBI raided the Koberger residence during the night hours arresting Brian. 
He was wanted on four counts of first-degree murder and one count of felony burglary for entering the home with the intent to commit murder. That white 2015 Hyundai Elantra was seized and additional evidence was collected. Okay, so then after Brian's arrest, the affidavit is released to the public. So let's get into that. I'm also putting the link to the full affidavit below this episode so you can access it. He agreed to be extradited to Idaho. His attorney, Jason Labar, said Koberger was eager to be exonerated and described him as an ordinary guy. I don't know what ordinary guy takes the innocent lives of four college students, but innocent until proven guilty, right? So a gag order was released shortly after and investigators, attorneys, prosecutors, basically anyone who's involved on the law end of this case is not allowed to speak about the case to the public in order to have a fair trial. Fair enough. But we wanted to know the details, right? We want to dig into the deets, find out why they think Brian Koberger is their suspect. You know, why do they think he's guilty? Why were they looking for the Hyundai Elantra? So many questions from people all over the world who are watching this case so closely. Well, the affidavit gets dropped on us and it's 19 pages long. It was an in-depth analysis of how the investigators discovered the crime scene and what connected Brian to the case. In the affidavit, it goes in depth about the vehicle they were looking for and how it was seen on multiple video footage that was given to them by the King Road neighborhood. That vehicle, the white Hyundai Elantra, was seen near the roommate's home from 3.29 a.m. to 4.20 a.m. Approximately at 4.20 a.m., the car is seen leaving the King Road residence at a high rate of speed. Local law enforcement asked the public to look out for the white Elantra, and in the affidavit, it says that a Washington State University police officer, Daniel Tiango, was able to locate a 2015 white Elantra with a Pennsylvania license plate that was registered to Brian Koberger. Now, this happened on November 29th, so that kind of tells us that investigators had their eyes on Koberger ever since. Koberger was living at Washington State at an on-campus apartment, which was approximately 15 minutes away from Moscow. It says in the affidavit that Brian's description was really consistent with the male DM, who is the surviving roommate, saw that night. She's referred to as DM throughout the affidavit. This could literally be for like privacy reasons, so I'm going to start calling her that from now on. Something that is really shocking and sad about that surviving roommate, DM, is that she was awake during this and saw a tall man with bushy eyebrows. This was her statement to investigators. At around 4 a.m., she was waken up by the sounds of what she thought was Kaylee playing with her dog. In the affidavit, it says that she heard what seemed to be Kaylee saying something along the lines of, there's someone here. Now, the forensic team shows that Xana was also awake, and according to her phone records, she was actually on TikTok at 4.12 a.m. This comes after she picked up her DoorDash order at 4 a.m. So she orders DoorDash, she goes, picks it up at 4 a.m., possibly goes to her room, and starts watching TikTok before this happens. When DM looked out of the room door after she thought she heard Kaylee saying there's someone here, she didn't see anyone. But then she heard crying from Xana's room and heard a male voice saying, it's okay, I'm going to help you. That's when she opened her door for the second time. At 4.17 a.m., a security camera from another home near their home picked up whimpering or crying a loud thud, and a dog barking numerous times. Now, still according to the affidavit, I'm reading it right in front of me as I'm speaking, DM states that she opened her door for the third time after she heard crying. That's when she saw a man in black clothing with a mask on, 5'10 or taller, 
athletically built with bushy eyebrows walk right past her as she stood in a frozen shock phase. Let me repeat that again for the ones who are still putting blame on the surviving roommates, who are, by the way, victims as well. Frozen shock face. The male walked towards back the sliding door and DM locked herself in the room. We don't know what happened to DM after that point. She could have passed out for all we know. But I want to explain that frozen shock face to those who are still pointing their fingers or asking why she didn't call the cops right away. This statement comes from Dr. Judith F. Joseph. She's a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry at New York University Grossman School of Medicine. It was written in an article on Today and she said, When your body is in shock and you think you're going to die or you think you're in a threatening situation, adrenaline surges your symphatic nervous system and takes off. And you may experience a frozen state where consciously you know what's happening, but then a coping mechanism is for you to disassociate, Joseph said. I personally believe that DM being in that frozen shock phase saved her life. Also, we have to remember this. She is now a key witness and helped with identifying the suspect. She was able to describe him to investigators, and that's been very helpful for them. She's probably going to be in the trial, too. Now, let's talk about the evidence. Brian left his DNA from a button snap on a knife sheath that was found next to the victim, Maddie, at the crime scene. Investigators were able to match that DNA with Brian's dad from the family's trash can. Like, that's huge, okay? I don't think he purposely left a knife sheath. Like, that wouldn't make sense. But you never know, right? It almost sounds like he forgot the knife sheath after he did what he did, the horrific crimes that he decided to do. And investigators were able to match the DNA from that knife sheath. Now, I have to look up what a knife sheath is. Oh my gosh, you guys can laugh at me. I don't even care. I didn't know what a knife sheath was. So I had to look it up and it's basically a knife cover. So it's this leather knife cover. Okay, so imagine a knife cover or go Google an image real quick so you know what it looks like. So there's like buttons on the side of that and DNA was found on one of those buttons. And they were able to match that DNA with Brian's dad by digging through the family's trash can, obviously without them knowing and linking it that way. On page 11th of the affidavit, it talks about what Koberger studied and how he applied for an intern position at the Pullman Police Department in the fall of 2022. So right before this happened, at the end of this page is where you can find info regarding all of the cell phone pings from Koberger's phone near the roommate's home. This part is like really eerie too. The amount of times his phone pinged near the roommate's home is so creepy. Now, on November 13th, the night it happened between 3 a.m. and 5 a.m., Brian's phone did not ping near the roommate's home on King Road, okay? So November 13th, that's the night he did this, it did not ping from 3 a.m. to 5 a.m. That's around the same time that the crimes were committed. Law enforcement believes that Brian could have left his phone away from their home during that time or he turned his phone off while committing the crime. According to his cell phone record data at 2.47 a.m., it stops pinging to network towers. But then all of a sudden, it turns back on at approximately 4.48 a.m. However, this is actually really disturbing. But at approximately 9.12 a.m., to 9:21 a.m., his phone location pinged near the roommate's home. Investigators believe that Brian was back in Moscow and near their home again at around this time. So, if it's him, right? He commits the crimes around 4 a.m. His phone starts pinging again at approximately 4:48 a.m., right? But then he like 
forgets to turn off his phone or his phone pings again at 9.12 a.m. to 9.21 a.m. near their home. But what was he doing there again? What was he going back there for? Possibly the knife sheath cover that he left behind, or maybe he was going back to see if police was called yet. So disturbing, especially knowing that the surviving roommates were still in there and Brian was outside. But wait, it gets worse, okay? Because Brian's cell phone actually pinged 12 times near the home before all of this even happened. It was always in the late evening or early morning hours. This was going on since August 21st, 2022. From August 21, 2022, up until November 13th, his phone was pinging near the home 12 times. Insane. It makes you wonder, was he stalking these roommates the whole entire time from August until November? I don't know. We'll find out during the trial. Investigators most likely have so much more evidence that they will save for the trial. So we're going to find out a lot more when that time comes. Brian did plead not guilty. So let's see how this all turns out. Brian's family, they're suffering with this too a suspect's family or a possible suspect's family. In most situations, they had no idea. And for any crimes that their son or their brother or their loved one committed because they're not responsible for someone else's doings, right? Even if it's their son or their family member or their loved one. So I don't think anybody should ever harass them or be mean to them. If anything, they're suffering right now with the other families as well. So I just hope they're okay and I hope they're able to heal from all of this because I'm sure it's been very, very traumatic for everybody involved. He will have to make an official plea on a hearing scheduled for June 26, 2023. If he does plead not guilty, then the court is going to set a trial day. So yes, we have to wait until June 26 in the summer to find out when the trial date will start. I know this episode was a lot longer than my previous ones. There's just so much information on this case. I wanted to make sure I covered most of it, especially because I haven't released an episode in a really long time. And I'm sure you guys were waiting for an update. There was just so much going on and so many random updates every day. I wanted to make sure I collected everything all at once so that I was able to release it to you guys in a second part. So again, if you haven't heard the first part of this case, I do go in depth about that night and what happened. I do talk about the victims and their families. Again, I will link it in the description. I hope you all stay safe out there and I will be back to speak with you soon. Before I leave, though, I also want to let you guys know anytime there is a ongoing case or something that is happening right now or or just like a case request that keeps getting requested over and over again, I will try to cover it as soon as possible so you don't have to wait for a full episode. It will be covered usually on my TikTok or on my Instagram stories. I try to throw a case on my Instagram stories at least once a week. So if you guys want to follow me there and see what that's all about. It's at Marianne Nafs. And I will also go ahead and link both of those in my description. My TikTok is Marianne Nafsu.